Lo for Lava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Lo'ingo o Susana Suisuiki. Coming up. What we need to focus on now is to hold Japan to account. Over 1 million tons of treated nuclear wastewater released into the Pacific today. Also, it does help to have people come to bring in the dollar so that we can feed our families. Two weeks after the fires, Maui locals want tourists back. And later, what are the issues hampering the PNG public service? Japan's release of over 1 million tons of treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific is officially underway. Tokyo Electric Power Company says it's an important step towards decommissioning the destroyed Fukushima power plant after it was hit by a tsunami 12 years ago. The disposal started at 1pm local time on Thursday the 24th. The Secretary-General of the Pacific Islands Forum, Henry Puna, told Lydia Lewis Pacific leaders are committed to holding Japan fully accountable should anything go wrong. In news, Justin, before I ask my first question, I have just received confirmation from Tokyo Electric Power Company's communications team that the discharge of Alps treated water has started. It started uh, just a few minutes ago, 4pm Fiji time, 1pm Japan time. Before I ask my question, Secretary General, I would like to hear your reflection as the water is just starting to be released. Well, it is to be expected, Lydia, and it is happening. And, you know, it is something that uh, we have been uh, in discussions and negotiations with Japan for over two years. And uh, so it's not a surprise. Yeah, there might be regret, but it's not a surprise that it is happening. And I must say that, uh, you know, it is well within Japan's sovereign rights to do what they're doing. And I am assured by the commitment given by uh, Prime Minister of Japan that the release will not be uh, starting until Japan is satisfied that all safety measures have been taken and that the water will be safe, that uh, it will be safe for the citizens of Japan, but also for the citizens of the Pacific Island states. And that's a commitment that our leaders, I'm sure, we will be holding Japan to fully accountable should anything go wrong. Is this a dump or a release? We have been covering this story now for quite a long time and there are still differences in how people view this. The IAEA was very clear in an interview with RNZ when he was in New Zealand, when Director Grossi was in, Secretary General, apologies, was in New Zealand that science says this is a release. But science has also said that this is a dump. What is the Secretary-General's official stand on this? I think IAEA has answered your question, and I think they're better placed to answer that. Just to be clear, the forum's official position is that this is a release, not a dump? It is a release, uh... Lydia, because, you know, they spread over 30 to 40 years. If it was a dump, it would all be dumped together. Thank you for confirming that. Have you engaged with and sought legal advice? We have been guided uh, by legal advice from our own uh, legal expertise here at the Secretariat and from others. What does that then mean for the Rarotonga Treaty? 
is there potentially any breach then if countries don't oppose it? Yes, our leaders are also concerned with the implications that this would have on the Rarotonga Treaty. And of course, combined with our nuclear legacy uh, issues and experiences, uh, you know, that was really what prompted our leaders to be very, very uh, sensitive uh, to this uh, action by Japan in the first place. But now that, uh, you know, they've had the reports from IAEA and our own uh, panel of experts, um, you know, the divergence of views have now emerged. And, uh, but we have to move forward, Lydia. You know, Japan has started the release and the best we can do. And the only option that's open to us now is to ensure that Japan is held accountable to the safety of the water and the guarantee from IAEA that they will be, they will have a presence on site to regularly and continually monitor the quality of the water that is being discharged. And we look forward to, uh, you know, to regular reports, not just from IAEA, but also to continuing dialogue at the highest level with the government of Japan on this issue moving forward. Locals on Maui Island are struggling financially from tourists cancelling their trip to Hawaii. In the immediate aftermath of the fire that engulfed Lahaina about a fortnight ago, many locals were upset at the sight of tourists snorkelling and having fun. But attitudes are changing and many locals want to see visitors come back. Caleb Fotheringham has more. In an address to the world, Governor of Hawaii Josh Green made it clear tourists were welcome. The mystique and love here, the aloha, is here for you. And the reason I say that is because when you come, you will support our local economy and help speed the recovery of the people that are suffering right now. The thousands and thousands of family members that may have had loss who will still have to care for the others that remain. It comes as search teams continue to comb through rubble looking for human remains. At least 115 people have died and around 1,000 people are still missing. Officials are urging family members with relatives unaccounted for to offer DNA samples to help identify the victims. Griff Timpsey, owner of Aloha Kayaks Maui, says locals asking for time to grieve was a valid request, and visitors returning to the island is a delicate topic. The community needs time to heal. Of course, businesses rely on visitors. That's the business model for the state. So, you know, it's kind of a touchy subject. I think there's such thing as conscious tourism where people visit here but, you know, maybe give part of their time while they're here, volunteering. However, he and many others agree with Governor Green that tourists can return. Marcus Perry, the owner of Hualua Jeep Adventures, says it didn't seem right for tourists to come to the island and have fun, but attitudes have changed. He says people are now pleading for visitors. We are all still going through the shock and grieving process, but it does help to have people come to bring in the dollar so that we can, you know, still pay to feed our families and to uh, make a living here. The tourism industry generates about 80% of Maui's wealth, bringing in about 5.7 billion US dollars each year. Mr Perry says he's in the midst of trying to renegotiate bills because of the lack of customers. We've had dozens of cancellations totaling about $100,000. We have very few new bookings and 
yeah, it's a struggle right now to stay afloat. Mr Perry says as time has gone on, concern has extended to those suffering from the residual impacts of the fire, as well as the immediate victims. Hawaiian native Kanani Higby says hours are being cut to the extent some full-time workers are down to one day a week. A lot of people tell me how much they're hurting. I can see it in the stores too because one of my jobs is I'm a grocery store cashier. I can tell that there's hardly any customers and it's because they don't have the money to buy food because their hours are being cut at work. Ms Higby says the island community showed support for Lahaina by volunteering, but now they need to get back to work. The governor of Oro Province in Papua New Guinea, Gary Jufa, is leading efforts to improving public service operation and efficiency. He chairs a special parliamentary committee on public sector reform and is impressed by what he's seen saying as few as 10% of staff are being left to shoulder the burden. Mr Jufa wants these people gone and the most innovative and productive people employed in their place. Don Wiseman asked RNZ Pacific's PNG correspondent, Scott Whitey, if there's a problem with the public service. Yes, there's a problem with the public service and we've got serious problems stemming back 20, 30 years and they are legacy issues that haven't really been resolved. And it goes back to the 1995-1990 reforms where there was a marked dip in the quality of training that public servants received, the quality of services provided, it happened from that period. And that has affected a whole range of departments, government entities, and the problems that existed after the 1990s weren't really resolved. These legacy issues, poor training and so on, why did they happen? Was that just a money issue? One was the money issue. The other was the interference by politicians into the appointments of public service heads. The influence now, the political influence now, you can see right down to the appointments of chief executives of the district development authorities. So generally, if you are a friend of the politician, friend of the local MP, you highly likely to get a job as the head of the district development authority. So there was a post by Alan Bird previously saying that if you choose to become the chief executive of the of a district development authority, it's it's a dead end job. You can't get any other job after that because people see that as a very tainted job, very politically influenced with strings tied to it. So you you can't really progress in the public service, you know, as a career move going from the chief executive of the district development authority onto another. I presume after the election, if your benefactor loses, then uh, you're out. Yes, that's usually the case. And and you can see that also with district administrators, provincial administrators. So you've got some very good public servants who work their way up to becoming provincial administrators. But there's an element of politics there that they have to manage as well. And that wasn't the case in the 1980s, uh, 1970s after independence, where the public service was relatively robust and and free of the political influence. Gary Joffa wants to see big change. He says, at the moment, the number of truly committed and patriotic public servants is as low as 10%. He wants the other 90% out, it would seem. Is that possible? 
practically it's a difficult challenge trying to get the public service working again. And, and Jufa's comment resonates with a lot of Papua New Guineans. A lot of them want to see a public service that works for them. It's unfortunate that they haven't been able to see that in the last 30 years. So it's a public demand. He's echoing that public demand. And if you go to government departments now and try to get something processed, there's always some person asking for a bribe. You can find that in the land department. You can find that in the health department. Every other government department, it's the low-level public servants that are actually supposed to do the work that are asking for these things. And then as you move up, you, you find different levels of it. A classic example of, of a public service department, a public entity that doesn't work, is the National Housing Corporation. Now, they're tasked with providing affordable housing for for Papua New Guineans. In the last 30 years, all they've done is evict people. And there's tons of evidence showing that it's a government entity that has been focused on removing Papua New Guineans from institutional housing. So it's it's just one example of the myriad of problems that we're, we're having in Papua New Guinea. So can Gary Joffa remove these people and overcome the problems, end up with a lot of people unemployed, presumably? The repercussions are quite dramatic, aren't they? Yeah, it's a massive, massive task. And, and personally, I find it difficult to see an easy way out of this. And as you said, if, if he had it his way, a lot of people would be out of jobs and it would create another crisis altogether. Yes, it seems to come back to money. Presumably, these people are asking for bribes because they consider themselves to be poorly paid. Is that the situation? That is part of the situation. But if you look at the pay grades of public servants in rural districts where the costs are less and you still have that level of corruption in rural areas where public servants are working. It's a culture that has developed over time and people find it acceptable that it's okay to ask for bribes because they feel entitled to do it. Have you paid bribes? Personally, no. I've clashed with people. I've actually clashed with people who've asked for bribes. And it's really difficult because you say no, and then somebody else comes after you, has his paper signed or his paper stamped very quickly. And you can see that with things like the national ID system, where if you know somebody in there, you can get your NID processed very quickly. And NID is a government program that is being heavily criticized for being slow and cumbersome. That's Pacific Ways for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, till Fast Way 4.